Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. Our life as creative people or as artists or whatever is divided into two halves. And the first half, I would say, is our hero's journey, which is really what government cheese is about. When we're walking into walls and falling off of cliffs and we're basically searching for who we are and what our calling is. And that hero's journey, that journey ends when we find out what our calling is and who we really are. Like we say, okay, I'm a dancer. I don't care what happens, I'm gonna dance. And then our world shifts. And then for the rest of our lives, it becomes about, okay, what kind of dancer am I? What is my gift? Why did God put me on this planet? And how can I deliver that load? How can I give this gift? Hello, friends, and welcome back to The Light Watkins Show, where I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who have overcome their internal resistance to try to be, quote, successful in a conventional sense. And instead, they've taken sometimes extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, or whatever they've identified to be as their mission in life. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many others who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who have directly benefited from their work. And today I'm in conversation with a prolific author who has been perhaps one of the biggest influences in my own personal creative journey. This is his third appearance on the podcast. His name is Stephen Pressfield. He is the author of The War of Art, Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be, Gates of Fire, Man in Arms, and about 20-something other books in total. And as you may know, Stephen has been one of my personal mentors. I credit his books with helping me write my books and start my podcast and develop my shine event. And I would say that his book, The War of Art, specifically is the book that I refer back to the most often when I don't feel like writing or when I don't feel like showing up to create. And for the uninitiated, The War of Art is about overcoming resistance and going from being an amateur creative you know, someone who shows up when they feel like it or when the circumstances are favorable to becoming a professional who shows up like clockwork every day, whether you feel like it or not, whether the circumstances are favorable or not. So that was a life changing book for me. And, and I mean that in every sense in the word. And Stephen shares helpful, creative anecdotes in that book. He talks about many experiences from his own personal life where he learns sometimes through difficulty, sometimes through comical errors, what it means to be a professional versus an amateur. And the long-term fans know that Stephen has made reference to his truck driving days and his time as an apple picker and that time he worked at an ad agency and he drove a cab. And I know from having researched him before my interviews that you have to kind of piece together the connective tissue of all of those experiences for yourself 
That is, until recently, because Stephen has now released a memoir called Government Cheese, which tells the stories in between the stories in his other books. And it sort of completes the journey of how he became the War of Art author and which parts he took from his truck driving experiences and which parts he took from his advertising experiences and his time as a struggling screenwriter, et cetera, et cetera. Now, because we've already documented Stephen's backstory pretty thoroughly in episodes 114 and 42, this episode is going to be more of a conversation. I still ask some questions about his book, his memoir, his life, but I also share a lot of my own personal experiences in the creative process just to contrast against Stephen's wealth of experience. So if you're already a Stephen Pressfield fan, you're really going to love this conversation. And if you're newer to his work, your next couple of months are shot because you're going to be inspired from this conversation to do a deep dive into his work as I did back when I first heard about The War of Art in 2013. So without further ado, let's get into it. I want to introduce you again to the man who really needs no introduction, Mr. Stephen Pressfield. Government cheese was a punchline when I was in school, you know, because I grew up in the South in Alabama and uh, mostly black neighborhood, actually all black neighborhood. And I think about it, but whoever was receiving government cheese, that was kind of like a indication that oh, you really? didn't, so your family didn't have their stuff together. Uh-huh. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You tease kids about that. So it's uh, interesting yeah. to see it in this context and especially the, the reasoning behind it and the metaphor behind it and, and whatnot. But anyway, it's great to see you again and I'm looking Likewise. forward to talking about it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll talk you, about you, anything you want to talk about. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, look, man, you keep writing these books. I, we, I just had you on the podcast in July for the previous <laughs> book. Yeah, I got but, more coming uh, too. <laughs> what about you? Every time I turn around, I get another book from you. So every time I turn around, well, it's because I read your book. So, uh-huh. <laughs> Government Cheese is a memoir. It's your most recent book, and you tell the stories in between the stories that you're now. You know, you have a huge fan base for reading your self-help work as well as your other fiction and narrative nonfiction work. So one of the stories you tell about working for this trucking company is how you were sort of brought in. Your boss brought you in and you'd been screwing up a bit and he kind of told you, look, this is a job. <laughs> we're all professionals, but you're not acting like a professional. And so I don't know if that was sort of the embers for this whole pro versus amateur thing in your personal life. I think it really was like, you know, it was really one of those thanks I needed that type moments, you know, that we all have. This was a boss that I really admired that kind of hired me when he didn't need to, you know. Because you were a Marine. He took a chance on me when I was, you know, a real unskilled, untrained person. And I screwed up, you know, and I kept screwing up. And I remember he said to me, he says, I can see you're working out some stuff, young man, you know, and he says, I don't know what it is and I don't want to know. But just remember, you work for me and your job is to deliver loads. And that's, you know, and when when I give you a load, it better appear, you know, where it's supposed to appear. And so that was definitely a real come to Jesus moment for me, you know, that finally got through to me. A lot of people have told, like all of us, you know, our coaches, our fathers have told us that stuff, but a lot of times it doesn't penetrate. That time it did. 
<clears throat> stuck with me forever. It reminded me of a time when I, I actually reached out. When I was in college, I was an advertising major, and I reached out to USA Today, which is in Roslyn, Virginia. And I wanted to just proactively seek out an internship. It was going to be unpaid. I just said, hey, I want to come and work for you guys for free. And the guy said, you know, he was impressed with my initiative. And he said, yeah, come on out. And I went out and secured the position. And because it was an unpaid position, I took the liberty of showing up whenever I wanted to show up. Uh You know, uh I didn't really take it as seriously. And then one day he calls me up and he says, hey, you know, it's it's great that you want to be around here and you show up. We're going to need you to get here at a certain predictable time and stay for a certain number of hours and do that on the same day of the week. So we can rely upon you. And that was oddly enough, that was actually new information. Like I didn't, I thought because I was volunteering that right. I could just yeah. they should be do whatever I wanted to do. Yeah. They should be grateful. I was there. Yeah. <laughs> and then I realized, no, I have to be professional about this, even though I'm not getting paid because I'm getting paid in something else. That's not money. I'm getting yeah. paid in experience, so getting paid in mentorship. Like? It did. That, that's the, that was, that was my moment that you wrote about in yeah. your book that stuck with me. And mm-hmm. it's really about your integrity and about your word and, and yeah. things like that. You know who Joe Decina is of the Spartan race? I've heard the name, but I don't I don't know his story. Oh, really interesting guy, and he did a great uh-huh. podcast with Rich Roll, like mm-hmm. maybe a year ago. Very he started the Spartan race that's now become this big thing. Okay. And uh he Yeah, no, I know the Spartan about, race. About uh, a similar thing where he had a business cleaning swimming pools when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. And it was in New Jersey. And a bunch of the guys that he worked for were wise guys, mafia guys. And one of them sort of took him under his wing. And he said, kid, when you tell me you're going to be here at eight o'clock in the morning, be here at quarter of eight. Mm-hmm. And then he also said, and don't ever ask me about money. Don't ever give me a price that you want. You Do the work and I'll give you the money. I'll give you the raise when you're, and that was another sort of uh, come to Jesus moment for him. You know, we kind of mm-hmm. realized people watch you, your bosses watch you, right? And when they see that you're have your own initiative and your own self reinforcement, they love that stuff. You know, I know mm-hmm. I do when mm-hmm. somebody's working with me and I see they're really actually thinking and it makes you want to help them. Yeah, it's such a rare thing to have someone who who thinks about problem solving on a deeper level than just the surface. And, and you do you do want to. I've had the same experience with my people working on my team and stuff. You want to figure out ways to keep them incentivized because you know it's such a rare talent. You know, and yeah. they they'll eventually discover their own value, and then they'll seek that position that allows them to to be more creative and to receive the rewards of that. It, uh, it, it reminds me beyond that, if I had any break in on you, like for yeah. somebody like you and me that are essentially individuals pursuing an individual destiny, mm-hmm. we have to learn to do that for ourselves, right? Recognize and reinforce that sort of stuff in ourselves, be our own bosses and write the paycheck to our own selves and kick our own butts when we have to. <laughs> And mm-hmm. give ourselves praise when we have to. That's kind of the the higher form of that, I think. <laughs> yeah. So you've been on the show a few times now, and we've talked about your origin story. You've gone really deep to your childhood and all of that. And you just recently released this memoir 
or will be released by the time this episode airs. So it's called Government Cheese. It is a memoir. You've written what? This is number 22, 23? Something like that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. And half of those books are self-help books. And then the other half are books that are based in history. I'm curious. I love hypothetical questions. So indulge Uh me, please. If you could only be known as a self-help author or someone who writes about history and narrative nonfiction, which would you choose? If you could only have really one canon of books. I would choose the fiction side, the fiction and the narrative nonfiction side. Yeah. Because self-help side was almost an accident. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's what you're becoming more and more known for, though, is self-help stuff. I know, which is sort of irritating. <laughs> <laughs> so do you feel obligated to follow through on these projects that the muse is delivering to you with the self-help stuff? Is that how you pay the bills to write your fiction stuff? And I mean, your spiritual <laughs> a great, bills. A great question, Light. It's about 50-50, but... Mm-hmm. I'm interested in that self-help or fiction or nonfiction for my own self. You know, mm-hmm. it's like about the craft of writing or any creative endeavor, but also the mindset, the mindset of self-discipline and so on and so forth. And I'm interested in that. I'm sort of teaching myself that. Like I've got two more books done waiting to come and others coming in all the time. So it's a subject that's interesting to me, but I'm really sort of writing for myself to sort of educate myself. You know how when you write something, you really learn it, you know, when you have to actually put it down on words and and on paper and say an answer to the question, what do I really think about this? What do I really know about it? Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. I want to pull the curtain back a little bit for the listener who may be more familiar with your work. You got your own publishing company now, correct? Yeah, I've actually had a publishing company for the war of art and other books like Mm -hmm. that with Mm -hmm. partner, Sean Coyne, 
but that sort of ended about a year ago. So mm-hmm. I'm now with my girlfriend, Diana Wilburn. We started our own little company. So that's a whole other adventure. What's the benefit of that? As someone who has such name recognition as you, you imagine you could just walk into, say, Random House or whoever and pitch them your idea for the next book. They'd give you, you know, easy six figure, maybe possibly even seven figure advance. And that way you can just focus on the writing as opposed to focusing on setting up shopping carts and all the little the nuances of, of running your own publishing company. Why start a publishing company now? Well, this may be interesting to people who are listening. And what you just said is not true. I can't walk into Random House. I can't. They don't want it. They don't want my stuff. Or if they do, they want to put me on the road teaching seminars and stuff like that, which I have no interest in doing whatsoever. So I know people sometimes think you might have a name and you can do this and that, but in the real world, you can't. You knock on doors and a lot of times the doors don't open at all. That was a part of in your book that I really thought was really interesting where we get in the Hollywood chapter, right? Where you became essentially the hottest writer in all of Hollywood, even though you had been, you know, writing these flops and the work you were most famous for was a script you didn't even write. You just, you just <laughs> translated it. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about how perception of being success in that industry actually equates to you or I should say relates to you trying to maintain your sense of integrity with, hey, look, I, I want to write good stuff. And this other thing, I didn't really write it. And I don't want to put my name on it and and all of that. And how that sort of shaped you graduating yourself from that industry and, and, and really doubling down on this other idea you had for the golf book. No, that's a great question. Like it actually, to me, it was fascinating when it happened because it was so counterintuitive and so insane. It's like I wrote two scripts that got kind of made into movies back to back, and they were ungodly bad, unreleasable, unwatchable, just total failures, you know. But when I went to my agent and was sort of ready to kill myself because these things were so bad, he told me, you know, don't you realize you just had two movies made? Nobody's going to see them in the industry. I mean, they don't care. All they know is they see your name next to a title and it's in the Hollywood Reporter. And he said, you don't realize it, but you're the hottest writer in town with these two terrible, terrible movies. And then he immediately or on another subject, he immediately fired me. But I just thought that that's just crazy the way the world works sometimes, you know. And I thought I have to focus on what means something to me here you know i i can't be in this game because it's just it's too crazy it's interesting though because you wanted to be a writer at that point in time that was i would imagine your passion or what you identified as your passion and you had all of this interest and yet you decided to step away from that to pursue something that didn't seem as marketable and i think a lot of creatives particularly may have that same conundrum where you've already sort of gotten away from the conventional life to do this art thing and you could do the marketable thing. Cause you know, if you look at social media these days, half of the content is like you're one marketing funnel away from becoming a millionaire. You're one Airbnb <laughs> rental arbitrage from becoming a millionaire. All you have to do is this, you, you have you financially free, you can do whatever you want to do. And, you know, and it's so enticing to a lot of people. And yet you decided 
I'm going to step away. And your agent told you, if you leave for a week, you're going to be ancient history. If you leave for a month, you're a dinosaur. If you leave for a year, no one is going to give you a meeting again. So what gave you the courage to believe in the idea as much as you did? Because I don't remember anything up until that point. Like you didn't have like a Obi-Wan Kenobi figure in your life up until that point to kind of give you the wisdom to do that. How did you know to do that? Well, let me get to the the real details of this story here. I had had like a B-level career as a screenwriter, and I had a really good agent named Frank. I won't say his last name to respect his privacy. And suddenly I had this idea for a book, not a movie, but a book. And that was with a book that became The Legend of Bagger Vance that then became a movie. And this idea just kind of seized me. Like, you know, you know what it's like. An idea grabs you and you just have to do it. Even though when I thought about the commercial prospects of it and I was asking myself, is this a good idea? Should I really spend two years doing this? I thought, absolutely not. This is a really dumb idea. You know, it's not commercial. You know, it's a crazy idea. So I thought, but I was just seized by it. I just had to do it. So when I laid this on my agent, he said, just what you said, I've been working for you for the last seven years trying to get you going. And now if you pull the plug and walk away for a year or two years, you might as well be dead. People forget you in a week and a half. And all my work is going to go down the drain. This is him talking to me. And I knew he was right. But I was just seized by this idea. I just absolutely had to do it. We've talked before, like, you know, I'm a believer in the muse. I believe you get inspiration. And when it grabs you, you got to do it. There's just no looking back, you know, no matter what, you got to do it. But he said something very reasonable. He said, why don't you just do it on the weekends? Why don't you just do it at night? And then you can keep doing the screenplay stuff during the day. So since you already have traction, you work so hard for this. What is it about being seized that made you even reject that idea? Because I think that's a very reasonable idea to most people. Yeah, it is reasonable in the realm of reason. But any kind of creative work has nothing to do with reason. And I just knew it's like if the muse is watching over my shoulder, she just gave me this idea. And I turn around to her and I say, uh, how about if I just do this on weekends? She's going to fire me. You know, she says, I just gave you a great idea. Sit down and do the goddamn thing and don't be distracted by any other stuff, you know. But I just felt that in my bones light at the moment. I just had to do it. I, I had to do it every day and complete immersion, total commitment. I love it. I mean, did you have the language of the muse at that time in your life or was it just a feeling tone? No, I did have the, had the language. Yeah, so I definitely <laughs> felt it. Yeah, great. It was not a feeling tone. It was a real thing. Yeah. So that time with Paul, where he introduced you to the prayer and all that, that's where you yeah. sort of became dedicated to By your, way, your like, inner Thank you music. very much for reading this stuff so thoroughly that we can really have this conversation. It's a testament to your professionalism, and it also really helps our listeners, too. That, thank you. Uh, you know, so thank you for that. I appreciate it. I'm a fan, man. I mean, I've devoured all of your other books, and this was the kind of book that pulled it all together. And it's interesting because you reprinted some of the stories from your other books and they just like pop out, you know, it's like you're writing about things that only really a fan would 
understand uh-huh. the context of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you have these stories that are a little bit more universally understood because of that context that uh, someone who's read a lot of your work before has had. And I found myself pretty fascinated, but also laughing out. I literally, this hasn't happened with a book for a very long time where I was laughing out loud. I was in public reading mostly here in Mexico City. And I would just burst out, (laughs) even though there were stories I had seen before. But then this, when you get the whole backstory, which is what the memoir really does, it just adds a whole five or six more layers of context to it. I to see that. (laughs) It was, I was, it was, I was a little embarrassing, actually. I was laughing so much and so uncontrollably, you know, I just found it very poignant as, as well. But who did you write this book for? I mean, because... You know, writing a book is not a passive thing. It takes time and effort and you have to at least feel like there's a market for this. So, you know, again, you're balancing this idea from the, I, this, the muse is giving me this idea. Right. So I know I have to do it. But then there's the whole other side, the business side to it, where you you can't help but think about that a little bit. So as you're writing the narrative, who's the audience that you have in mind? Oh, that's another great question. I mean, people... You know, you know this light that people who read your stuff or listen to your stuff write into you. You know, I get lots of letters, right? And some of them are really heartbreaking, you know, heartrending, you know? And people will say, you know, thank you so much for your stuff about writing. You know, I would never finish my book if I hadn't read The War of Art, et cetera, et cetera. And I just thought, that's the person I'm writing for. Because the whole point of, of the book, Government Cheese, the memoir, was to tell the stories that you never tell, to fill in the blanks between one anecdote that I might have talked about in the War of Art or another one I might have mentioned in Turning Pro, let's say. But the person who's reading it, as you say, doesn't have the full context. It's sort of like, oh, it's a little story about when you failed and this and that, right? So I wanted to give people who are readers of mine the full story in a way that would encourage them because a lot of that stuff that the story behind the story is about stuff that's completely non-glamorous a job that you worked at for 18 months to save money so you could quit and write another and so that if somebody is slaving at their own job for 18 months or whatever to save money they go oh it's okay pressfield did it that's how he did it that's how he got from a to b so it's okay for me to do it. So that's kind of what I wanted to do. I just wanted to encourage people. And that's who I was thinking of as a reader, as I was writing. So the chapters overall are somewhat linear, but within each chapter, you're kind of like going back and forth and hopping around marriage and then the job and then this thing that yeah. happened before. What was the thinking behind organizing it in that way? It just sort of naturally flowed like the book sort of starts where I get hired as a truck driver. But I know that as a reader's reading this, they're going, well, where is he coming from? You know, Mm -hmm. how did he get to this place? You know, so I felt like, oh, okay, I got to do a little flashback to, you know, my marriage falling apart and, and, uh, you know, bouncing around here and there and that sort of thing. Was it tempting to add in some of that sort of self-help stuff? You know, the moral of the story at the end of each chapter or something like that or, or not? Did you have to use oh, discipline a, to not really do that? a really good question. Like, and actually, my whole theory on that is not to do that. I think the reader, it's more powerful when that's not there. 
you know, when you, when you don't actually say, oh, the lesson is this, because the reader gets it, you know, they're smarter than you and I are, you know, they're ahead of us by, you know, 15 minutes. The story starts at truck driving. It actually ends with that metaphor of the government cheese, which I thought was a really beautiful way to sort of wrap it up. Can you talk a little bit about that metaphor and what that meant to you as you were writing it? And then I have a couple of follow-up questions about it. You know, Larry McMurtry, who wrote Lonesome Dove and Terms of Endearment, Mm -hmm. great Western writer, just died like a few couple of years ago. And, you know, I think they asked him, you know, how come, you know, he's a very bookish guy, right? He had a big bookstore. And they said, how, how can you write so much about the old West and cowboys and cattle drives? And he said, you know, I think of myself as a writer, like I'm herding words across a page, like a cattle driver doing that thing, you know? So and I, was, I thought, that's great. I never thought of anything that way. So the government cheese metaphor in the book comes from when, as a truck driver, I was delivering surplus food government cheese and powdered milk and dried pinto beans and canned peaches and that sort of stuff to poor communities, almost always black communities on the coast in North Carolina. And it was a great experience for me. It really touched my heart in a lot of ways because I was probably making less money than anybody that was getting the surplus food. But I felt it was such a satisfying thing to deliver something that was going to go on people's tables. You know, Mm. it was going to keep them alive. And so Mm. I felt the metaphor for me as a writer, I felt like as a writer, I'm delivering a load. Remember, I remember we were talking before about my boss saying your job is to deliver a load. Right. And that's kind of, I think, what a, a metaphor for writing for me, that I've got this big truckload of stuff. And hopefully it's sustenance. Hopefully it's going to help people. It's going to give them something. And my job, I didn't make that stuff, right? I didn't grow it out of the ground. I didn't manufacture it. I'm just the vehicle that's delivering it, you know? And the other aspect of that in the book was when you were delivering to these churches and stuff, you would have to be there for like three or four hours while the truck was getting unloaded. But nobody ever asked you your name or ever Mm. addressed you by name. They always just called you driver. And it would be the minister. And he would say to me, you know, driver, would you pull your truck over there and park it? And, you know, you can come go inside and have some iced tea or something like that, if you like. But it was always driver. And I sort of felt like as a writer, that's very true. It's like uh, the reader doesn't really care who you are or what Mm. your name is or anything. They care about the load. They care about what you're unloading and giving to them. And I like that. I like thinking of myself as anonymous. So that was another way that it was a it was a metaphor for me, the delivering of the government cheese. Yeah. It also ties back to something I've heard you mention before from the Bhagavad Gita, but how you have the right to the effort yeah. of your work, but not to the fruit of your work. Yeah, that's Krishna, you know, i.e. God talking to Arjuna, the great warrior. You have your right to your labor, but not to the fruits of your labor which is a very stoic kind of concept, too. So let's double-click on this a little bit, this idea that you didn't make it, you're just there to deliver it. 
right? How do you do that? How do you keep your need for validation and all of that out of your creative process? Because I mean, it is you having to wake up and and make the time. And then I mean, you told the story, you know, you, your split with Stanley essentially was because you wanted more recognition or more money and all of that. And, and he wasn't in it for the money. He just wanted the credit. That's all he wanted. So everybody has the thing uh, that they want. writing partner that I mm-hmm. had in Hollywood, who was a, an older established writer. And I was like the junior member of the team. And at one point I asked him for more credit and he basically fired me. Mm-hmm. But in terms of keeping the ego out, like in a way, like, like I was saying before about when the idea for the legend of Bagger Vance came to me and it just totally seized me. Right. So it was really coming from the muse coming from another level. It was like, this is the load, right? You're the driver. Here's the load deliver it. And so the way that you kind of deliver it as a writer is to take your ego out of it. You know, if your ego is in there at all, that only gets in the way. You're only going to trip over your own feet. So, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert has talked about this very eloquently in a lot of ways where you have to pull your own need for anything out of the equation and put yourself at the service of whatever this song or this dance or this book or whatever. I mean, do you feel that way light when you're writing like your book, Travel Light, that's coming out soon? Do you feel that you're at the service of that idea or where does your ego blend with that? It's a good question. In my process, you know, I'm still very new. I'm not only four books in. So what I've noticed in my process is for me, getting my ego out of the way is, is surrendering to the idea that I need to be this kind of writer. I need to write like Stephen Pressfield, or I need to write like Robert Greene or these people that, that I really admire. And I'm just going to write like me. I'm just going to tell my story and my voice. And I'm going to understand that this is a process and it's going to get better with each go around and just let it be what it is and not try to control it as much as I was trying to control it initially. So, yeah, and just I guess just understanding that it's about the process and not the outcome, which is something that we all have heard before. It's cliche, but you have to actually go through it to embody that, you know, and I've described the writing process, especially this last book which is something I really wanted to write. But still, when you get into the throes of it, it's kind of like cutting the grass at Central Park with a push mower <laughs> and no one else can help you. All they can do is point to areas that you miss. and You got to go over and do that. And everyone's out having fun and playing Frisbee. And, you know, you're, you're over there sweating with your little push mower trying to finish cutting the grass. And it's going to take a long time. It's going to take you probably six months to do the whole thing. That's so, a great metaphor, Light. Yeah. So that, that was my experience. And then once you, when you're done, you're like, oh my God, I feel so accomplished. (laughs) (laughs) But then it's growing back again. It's time to turn around and do the whole thing again. But isn't it interesting that to like write in your own voice, you have to take your ego out of it. Mm. You would think it would almost be the opposite, but it's not. No, it's true. I mean, even with my daily doses of inspiration, when they first started off, they're really long. And I'm six plus years into it now. Now they're very pithy and and short. And it takes more effort to make them shorter, I've realized, than it does to just keep going on and on and on. 
And a part of that is just getting my ego out of it. I get to go back and take my ego out of it. And I'm getting better and better at that. But it's still hard. It's still hard when you're doing that on a daily basis. So, I'm yeah. I'm give you some props. I think that you, you know, I follow you and I read your daily doses every day. And they're very helpful to me. And you do have, you know, a very distinct voice that's yours alone. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. So this is my point. Is that my voice? Or is it the muse's voice being filtered through my life experience? Like, how do you know, okay, I, I'm really capturing the essence of this versus I'm too in my own experience? Is there, is there a way That's to a determine? Question. I'm not sure what the answer is. Even it's like, <laughs> I know sometimes I find that when I'm writing in my own voice, like say in the War of Art or something like that, mm. that on the page, I sound much more confident than I really am or much more sure of myself and my point than I really am. But yet, when I think about how do I really feel, I really am that sure. I mm. just sort of have a certain modesty in my real life or a certain insecurity in my real life. But but bottom line, I really am sure about what I want to say. So it's kind of both. It's kind of the muse's voice, but it's also your voice. So it's the ego that makes you second guess your deepest nature. Yeah. I mean, it must in be favor of what's happening right? externally. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I've been teaching is that when you give yourself the opportunity to drop into your least excited state of awareness, the way you know you're there is not because you're sitting there thinking about rainbows and flowers and waterfalls. The way you know you're there is because nothing is happening. <laughs> this is there's nothingness. And it's, it's that nothingness that is the telltale sign that you've merged with some more universal aspect of yourself versus your individuality. So it's your individuality where it's like you and my purpose, me and my friends, me and my partner, me and my experience of love. When you get to that deepest state, it's just one. It's just oneness. And what's beautiful about that is that the more you make contact with that deep state, the more you start to inherently feel that sense of oneness. So it becomes more impossible to not do someone else harm or to take advantage of someone else because you start to feel that that person is a part uh -huh. of you. It's, uh -huh. like, it's like you wouldn't take a sledgehammer to your left hand because that, uh -huh. would, that would hurt you. And so you have that same sort of feeling tone about relating to other things and other people. Right? I'm a believer, like, like at least was this my understanding of Buddhism, that there really is no personality, that we really don't have a, you know, a thing that's light or a thing that's Steve? I'm a believer that the thing that's light and the, and the thing that's Steve are our spiritual essences, and our spiritual essences actually do have a personality. But that personality is kind of like a ray in the a ray of light from the sun. Like it's all a part of this uh -huh. oneness and it's inherently bright and it's inherently good and it's inherently loving. And, and so the whole idea of coming to earth and incarnating in this life is to just, I'm a, I'm a, I tend to kind of adopt the philosophies of like Alan Watts, where it's just, it's about just to live and just to have an experience. And there's certain experiences that are going to be more appealing to certain spirits at certain times of their development than other experiences. So some people may want to go and have an experience of this romantic love affair. Someone else may want to become really wealthy. Someone else may want to experience what it's like to be crippled and a beggar on the side of the road. And, and then 
within all of those experiences are spiritual growth opportunities. You know, what is it like to feel compassion for a cripple if I have money? And so you guys make a contract, a sacred contract to cross paths at some point, maybe for a week, maybe for a month, maybe for decades and to kind of play off of each other. And, and, and you help that person who's crippled, you know, learn what it's like to receive. And, and the person who has all the money learns what it's like to give. And, you know, and then you play in your next lifetime. OK, I want to be the cripple. You know, it's, it's I was watching Breaking Bad. Have you seen this Breaking Bad? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've seen it like a bunch of times. Yeah. I rewatched the whole thing recently with my partner and she had never seen it before. And it was so great to see it again because I also went back and I listened to the podcast. The creators of it made a podcast for every episode. So they gave you the behind the scenes. Uh, Yeah. They give you the behind the scenes. And then I I was just, I'm such a fanboy. I went in and watched some of the table readings and, you know, these characters become so real but they're characters and and it's sometimes easy to forget the fact that they're characters and the better they are, the more intrigued you become and the more drawn you get into the story. And I think life is a lot like that. Like spirits are kind of like those characters having the table read before we incarnate and then we go Uh, into it uh and then we have the full experience and then we come out and it's like, wow, that was amazing. You played that role so amazingly. Uh I want to do that. I want to have a role like that one day, you know? That's great. I mean, I sort of feel like as I was writing Government Cheese and thinking about like there are seven books in it and each one is named after a mentor to me. Right. My truck driving boss and the guy I picked fruit with and that sort of stuff. Interesting. So okay. I sometimes wondered as I'm thinking about this because I'm a believer in previous lives and I, I believe, you know, in everything you just said, I wonder on some vibrational way. Do we draw those teachers to us or are they drawn to us to teach us? Because there seems to be some sort of an inevitability about it, even though it's completely random. If you looked at it, do you believe that people are like in the legend of Bagger Vance, in the story, the legend of Bagger Vance? It's about previous lives and kind of the concept of the book is that not only do we have lives that we go through, but we go through them with the same constellation of people, a lover, a friend, or whatever, that we sort of go through them as a group in some Mm -hmm. kind of a way. Mm -hmm. And I believe that, even though I can't prove it in any way. Do you think anything like that, Light? Does that ring a bell with you? You remember the old Bodhi Tree bookstore, right? Melrose? Oh, yeah. I love that. What a loss that was. <laughs> so I used to go in there and I'm really into the occult and esoteric type of books. And I got this book called Journey of Souls. Have you heard mm. of Journey of Souls by Dr. Michael Newton? I'm actually reading it right now. Yeah. Okay. So for the listener, he's someone who, according to his story, he's not around anymore, but according to his story, he was a hypnotherapist. And he would take people under and he would take them to past lives, right? Whether you believe in that or not, it's like whatever. But he did this hundreds, maybe thousands of times. And then one day he took somebody to a place that wasn't a current life and it wasn't a past life. It was some sort of in-between stage. So he decided to do it again and again. And then he became very adept at taking people to this life in between lives. And if you read the book, it's just a transcription of his sessions. 
And if you look at the questions and the quality of his questions, they were not leading questions. He wasn't like, do you see a light? Okay. Uh Are you floating right now? Uh You know, he'd just say, okay, what do you see now? And what are you experiencing now? And he's found that they were all describing the same relative journey. And he basically mapped out this whole journey of what happens from the moment you leave your current body and into the moment you incarnate in your next body. And so he talks about, you go back to your pod where you have your soul class, which are people who are kind of at the same level of development that you're at. And a lot of times you do share lifetimes together. It's like when you turn on Netflix and you're looking through the movies to see what you want to experience uh-huh. next. You may desire uh, an adventure one night or a thriller or a comedy or whatever the case may be. And then all of your pod mates will start to volunteer for roles. You know, I want to be your parent. I want to be your, your child. And, <laughs> and these roles are there to challenge you to evolve and grow in whatever ways that you want to do. And then, of course, there's mentors, teachers, people who've done it before and whatnot. So I, I resonated with that when I read that many years ago and I reread it every few years. The, the way that I sort of decide what I believe and what I don't believe is what I resonate with deep down inside, uh-huh. right? as a student of meditation and, uh-huh. and all these other spiritual practices. How is your experience of Journey of Soul so far? I'm actually having a bit of a hard time getting into it. You know, I've sort of started it like three different times, but I've got as much as what you were talking about, about the pods mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. But it's very interesting to me because I do believe it on some level. I don't have mm-hmm. like past memories or anything like that, but I do believe there's something there, you know? There's a dimension of reality where all time is simultaneous. And even though I don't understand that in this world. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that he says happens right before you incarnate again, is you go through what's called the recognition phase, right? Where you're shown certain objects or sounds or things that are meant to recall some sort of memory or some sort of desire that that's going to become a, a milestone or a way station for you in your, in your journey. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, people say, I met my wife. Well, when you first laid eyes upon that person, they were wearing a certain charm or they said a certain thing and it got uh-huh. your attention in a certain way. And so that's apparently all a part of this recognition, uh-huh. phase, which well, has happened to all of us. That. Yeah. Yeah. It's happened no. to all of us. And that was going back to your book. The reason why you decided to pick apples or live in the halfway house or work with Stanley or leave that, like there were certain things that lured you away that maybe you didn't have language for at that time, but there was that feeling tone. And that's certainly been my experience in terms of being on a path is being better at following the muse without labeling it, without judging it, without thinking that it needs to lead somewhere that makes you more comfortable. And it's really just about that becomes the game in and of itself is, can I take this leap of faith without, without beating myself up too much? Yeah. Right. And it always so, is a leap of faith, like even thinking of in writer's terms, whatever the next book is going to be or the next movie or the next project, because it's a leap of faith always. Right. And almost always I've found my rational mind tells me this is crazy. Don't do it. But the other mind is saying you got to do it, even though you have no idea how it's going to come out. And it seems like that's the way the world works, and that's the way it should work.
driving a truck is such a beautiful metaphor for this too. You know, you talked about, there's a story about when, what was his name? Byron, the guy that was yeah, kind of yeah. mentoring you. So he yeah. was teaching you, he was told to teach you how to take an incline in the truck and you had yeah. to go really fast, faster than you were comfortable going in order to be able to meet the resistance of going uphill. So I've thought about that in terms of the artistic journey, right? Oh, you know, I never where, thought about that light. That's but I like that. That's good. Or <laughs> you have to, you have to be so all in that it almost scares you. Right. Because you, because what's going to happen is, and you talked about this too, how your colleague at the ad agency, you know, he had the bestseller right out of the gate. So that sort of enticed you to try it out as well. And yeah. Inspiration, I think, is the easy part, but it's when you start to get that uphill incline and you're carrying this load of all these things, hopes, wishes, dreams that you you want to accomplish <laughs> and things start slowing down that you really need that momentum. Ah, you know, I never thought about that. I, I absolutely agree with that. I think that's great. Yeah. Like, yeah, and it scares you and it scares other people. You, when you hit yeah. an uphill in a truck with a big, heavy load, you have to start downshifting really fast because your speed is going to drop and it's dangerous. If you miss a shift, you're in bad shape. You know, you're going to be in first gear going up some, you know, so you have to kind of carry as much speed as possible into an uphill. And like you say, that gets scary because you get really rolling. Yeah. And there was that other story where you didn't hook it on correctly and it kind of yeah. did it turn on its side and you had all this hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment in the carriage or it just went straight down, nose uh -huh. first. You know, it didn't yeah. fall over on, on its side. Yeah. It just crashed nose first. And then you sort of gave the anecdote of how Byron came and helped to jack that up. But you thought you had just screwed up completely, right? And then he just came in step by step help you to recover that. And I think that's another great metaphor for the artistic journey is that when you flop, when you get that negative review, you know, you try at your best and you think, well, it's all gone to hell now. Well, really it's just about staying process oriented as opposed to being outcome oriented. And this is where mentorship can really help a lot too, because you have people like yourself, people who've been in the arena for a while, taking the blows, who can just tell you, well, you know, that script didn't work, but maybe that one element from that script would be a great premise for this other thing that you're you're working on or this one aspect to your painting could be a great premise for this other thing and just keep exploring keep trying and next thing you know you're back on the road again yeah yeah the interesting thing about that actual event when this truck that i was driving when i dropped this trailer was you know forty thousand pounds of, of load and twenty thousand pounds of trailer crashed onto their nose and it looked like i thought i'm hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt for this how am i ever going to pay this back and this other driver named byron was sent out to help me and all he did he took a few wooden blocks heavy wooden blocks and a regular jack regular tire jack and he just put it under this trailer this forty thousand pound trailer and little by little, he pumped it back up. So the sort of, it was just amazing to me. I thought it was going to need a crane to get this thing up, but it was just one guy with a little jack and he did it. Mm. So you're right. There's a great metaphor to that, that as bad as some failures seem, somebody that knows what they're doing can set it right mm -hmm. without panicking, you know, just no problem. Here, I'll just do it. Speaking of panicking, you said the hardest thing you've ever done in your entire life happened with that truck. Yeah, where you get to rewire. Yeah. <laughs> Which is another metaphor, because later on, when the guy asked you how to go, you said, it was OK, it's no problem. <laughs> you know, 
it's almost like expecting hardship as a part of that process. And it's not, it's not even worthy talking about. Nobody cares. Nobody really cares. All they care yeah. is that did you deliver the thing? Yeah, exactly. Did you do what you yeah. said you were going to do? Yeah. And you shouldn't even really care that much. And that's where I'm getting to with my writing is I don't really, I used to think so much and care so much about what are people going to think, you know, and I'm just like, screw it. I'm just going to send it out. And, <laughs> and, and, and like you say, start with the next one. Yeah. I mean, it's not like you want to just send it out and you don't care if it's a, no, no. I mean, you do your best. You do your absolutely best to solve the problem on to the next one, you know, which is another law of life, you know, that, you know, there's another trolley coming down the track and you've got to get on it. Mm. So I heard you on Rogan, you talked about how, or maybe it was Tim Ferriss. I don't remember, but you talked about how there's all this talk about the hero's journey and eventually you have to shift to the artist's journey. And that's where your life actually becomes more boring, <laughs> which, which again is a little bit counterintuitive. So can you just talk a little bit about that concept? I feel like our life as creative people or as artists or whatever is divided into two halves. And the first half, I would say, is our hero's journey, which is really what government cheese is about. When we're walking into walls and falling off of cliffs and we're basically searching for who we are and what our calling is. And that hero's journey, that journey ends when we find out what our calling is and who we really are. Like we say, okay, I'm a dancer. You know, I don't care what happens, I'm going to dance, you know, and then our world shifts. And then for the rest of our lives, it becomes about, okay, what kind of dancer am I? What is my gift? Why did God put me on this planet? And how can I deliver that load? How can I give this gift? And so if you're a writer, you're now all about honing your instrument your self-discipline, your ability to surrender to the muse, your ability to trust yourself, your ability to endure rejection and failure, and then just the craft itself. You know, how is a story told? That kind of thing. And so when I say that half of your life becomes boring, on the outside, it looks boring. Like if we watch Twyla Tharp, the great choreographer, she gets up in the morning, she goes to the gym, then she goes to her studio. She's there all day, you know, you know, working on the dance, and then she goes home. So it, it seems boring from the outside, but from the inside, the works that she's choreographing, that's exciting. That's where she's being really brave and going into areas she's never gone in before and all of the stuff, bringing everything to it, trusting her instincts, that kind of thing and her skills, the failures she's had in the past, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what I, I would call the artist's journey. First, the hero's journey, then the artist's journey. And the artist's journey is about our gift. What is it and how can we deliver it? So we're not monks, Steve, right? And we have partners sometimes, and maybe the partners are not exactly yeah. on the same kind of path. So how do you suggest we negotiate that as people who are on this very specific journey? Because, you know, having these boring existences, but we're really passionate about our work doesn't always work in a relationship context. It is kind of tough in a relationship context. And I've certainly had relationships where the person I was with couldn't take it, couldn't take the way I lived. And I understand that, you know, they maybe wanted to go to Cancun or go out at parties and stuff like that. And I would just have to say, you know, I just don't care about that. I'm not going to do that. 
So yeah, it does get complicated. It takes a special type of person to line up with somebody that's on an artistic journey. And usually mm-hmm. it's another person that's on their own artistic journey. Like I think a little bit about uh, Joan Didion and her husband, John Gregory Dunn. And they were both writers and they actually collaborated on a bunch of screenplays in addition to, you know, the individual works that they did. And apparently it worked, but it's certainly a tricky thing. You have a partner that's very much on your team and, and supportive and behind the scenes, Diana. Yeah. And in your in your in your dedication, you said Diana willed this book into being. So what do you mean by that? Because you're the resistance guy, you're the overcome resistance guy. So what do you what do you mean she had to, she willed the book into being? Well, we're talking about government cheese, right? And, and yeah, yeah, government she, cheese. I have, of course, you know, we're we're a couple, we're together. So I've told her a lot of my stories, you know, mm-hmm. the things we're talking about here. And she just said to me, you should write these down. You know, this should go. And so I immediately said, oh, who's going to care about that? That's really, you know, everybody's got a million stories. It's all boring. Why should I do it? You know, but she said, no, no, no. People will really care about this and so on and so forth. So she was the one who sort of willed this book into existence. Now, at the same time, she's a writer, too. And she has a bunch of books that are kind of in the oven of our own. And so. Part of our relationship, from my point of view, is me trying to help produce the fertile ground that her stuff can grow in, you know, and she can overcome her resistance and bring her gift out. I imagine you have that internal conversation with every book, right? Like, who's going to care? Well, I've already done this. So what made this time any different? And can the muse come through other people? Is that one of the ways the muse likes to communicate. I think the muse does communicate sometimes to other people. I've I've had that happen before. But this particular book took a long time to find traction. You know, mm-hmm. I probably was working on it for 9 months where I was still racked by self-doubt all the way through. You know, is this any good? Is anybody going to care about this or am I just indulging myself? Am I an idiot? And then finally I just sort of felt like maybe I am an idiot, maybe I am indulging myself, but I'm going to go for it anyway. I don't care. No, though. I mean, nine months is, again, it's not passive. It's a significant amount of time to not even know that I'm following my muse or is this just I'm just indulging. And you've been doing this forever, man. I mean, you you wrote the book about it. So how does someone out there who hasn't even written their first thing yet, how do they know, am I just being self-indulgent or is this something you just have to do it? It's a great question, right? And I do think that when I look back, you know, when you finish a book, you always, for me at least, I forget about it. Mm -hmm. I forget how hard it was. Yeah, It's sort of like flying to Australia, right? You think, oh, I forgot how hard it was. But then working on this book, I sort of flashed back to other earlier ones. And I thought, you know, they were really hard too. And I went through long periods of self-doubt. And I think that's just part of the process. My friend Victoria Labalm wrote a book, which I have here, on this subject called Risk Forward. And mm-hmm. it's exactly about that subject. It's about the period of self-doubt that you have and how it's a skill that you have to develop of keeping going, even in the midst of self-doubt. And it's what Keats called negative capability, to be able to hold two ideas in your mind at the same time, that this might not work or this might work. 
And I'm just going to go forward and, and ignore the one and hope that the other one's right. Did you hit a point where you decided, okay, this does need to happen and I'm going to put it yeah. out and I'm yeah. going to take it to it the next happen, level? I've found in books where maybe you get a third of the way through and you say to yourself, I could be wrong. Maybe this isn't going to work, but I like it. You know, if I were a reader and I were reading this, I'd want to keep reading. Then I think you do really get with the program and self-doubt goes away. Drilling a little deeper into the process, your process, having been, you know, you're a veteran in this, something I did differently with my previous book was I actually, there are these audio dictation mechanisms on the word processing software wow. now. So it'll read it to you. Yeah, huh? No, no, it'll read it back to you. Oh, oh. So I actually listened to my book read back to me without read because normally you read draft after draft after draft. And then I decided to just listen to a draft and it was different quality of experience than reading it. I would bet. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, you edited your own book. So I think I mean, you edited. Like, did that help you? Oh yeah. Tremendously. Tremendously. Because a, a lot of people and myself included are experiencing books as audiobooks these days. Yeah, uh -huh, so yeah. you want it to sound relatively yeah. conversational so that yeah. it's easy for the listener to follow but b it just i wanted to also make sure it was in my voice and so in your final stages of preparing this book for the public what are some of the things that you do that helps you do you have a couple of friends that read your manuscripts or what are some of your habits when it comes to preparing the book for birth one thing i don't do anything audio you know i don't read it myself i don't have anybody read it to me or anything like that I'm not sure why. I just, I guess I, I know a lot of people listen to books, but I'm old school. And so I'm just, I judge it by how it looks on the page. And when I was working with my dear friend and editor, Sean Coyne, he would be my feedback. And I absolutely listened to him as if it was the voice of God, you know. <laughs> but this last book, I just had to do myself. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll think of a friend or somebody that I know, and I'll say, what would they think as they're reading this book? And I'll kind of put myself in their, in their head, and I'll read it that way. And that helps me sometimes. Do you think that taking advice from other people is a betrayal of the muse when it comes to artistic expression? Like, should you just experience this for yourself? Or should you seek out outside opinions on, hey, what do you think about this? Do you connect with it or, or a little bit of both? That's another great question. I think that 99% of people, including other artists or writers, don't know what they're talking about and can't evaluate something correctly. And they will steer you wrong. But if you can find that 0.1% <laughs> that one person or those two people, then you've got solid gold and you got to hang on to them for everything they're worth. But it's a, it's very hard. It's, you know, Stanley, my writing partner, used to say it's very, very hard to know what's wrong with something when you read it. But it's even harder to know how to fix what's wrong. And very, very, very few people have that skill. I think it's it's almost an instinct. So I do think you can really go. I'm very much opposed to having bunches of people read your stuff 
particularly untrained people, but even trained people, because it's just so hard. And I myself, if somebody asks me to read something for them, I'll just recuse myself. I'll disqualify myself because I know I'm not really good at that. I haven't got that gift. What I will tell people if I if if I read anything is I'll tell them now if I were doing this this is how I would do it and of course that completely screws them up that's like the last thing in the world they want to know and the last thing in the world you should say because what you really want is what they would do not what you would do I'm not a believer in writers groups or anything like that I mean maybe it works for somebody else but I would never show something I was working on to amateur writers forget it no way. I didn't show any of my manuscripts to anyone before they were published. I was just well, listening to it for uh, me, for my own personal satisfaction. And it's like, uh, okay, that's that's good. Well, it's working, like whatever you're doing, it's working. <laughs> but you know, your relationship with Stanley was such a fascinating, I think, example of the mentor-mentee relationship. And I would love for you to just talk about that a little bit more for the listener and how it worked, right? Where you guys had a certain time you you schedule, but then he would show up four or five hours later and why that dynamic worked for you for that time in your life. Well, I, when I got teamed up by my agent at the time with an older established writer in Hollywood who had had, you know, a couple of big, big hits and he was a brand, you know? And so for the first time in my life, being the junior member of this team, I actually was working, you know, we would go into meetings and Stanley was the brand and people wanted to work with him. So when we first started working together, he said, okay, well, work over your place. I'll be there at 930. So the first day he showed up at 1.30. The second day he showed up at 2.30. And then three, you know, and finally, after like six weeks of this thing, I said to myself, Steve, just start. Don't wait for him to get here. Just start. So I did the next day, you know, I banged out like six or seven pages. And when he got there, we went over the pages and he had a lot of good ideas. And I realized that that was what he wanted all along, that he wasn't really a writer writer in the sense that he could sit down and write a scene. He was a producer writer. And so he was the kind of guy who could I could give him 10 ideas about a scene and he would reject nine of them, but he would pick the one that was right. And so that was a great mentor situation for me or mentee situation, because I would keep asking myself, why did he pick that one? You know, how come I can't pick that one? And he just had that gift. He knew it when he saw it. And he also could bring the good stuff to himself. He'd have great ideas as well. And he would never literally sit down and teach me anything. But I just watched the way he thought. And what movies he liked, what stories he liked, what he thought. He was one of those guys who could tell you what was wrong with something. Mm-hmm. And he could tell you how to fix it. So he had that rare gift. He was that one in 10,000 who could do that. And you learn from that just by watching, right? You're just constantly asking yourself, how did he pick that one kernel out of all of those others? And it's great to watch when you see it happen. Yeah. I mean, when you're around these people, and I've been around people like this as well, part of you makes you think I need to be around this person all the time because the more I'm around them, the more I realize I don't know. So how do you know when it's time? I mean, your exit was a little bit more, like you said, he dumped you. How do you know it's time to graduate yourself from that sort of mentor relationship and move off and be on your own? You know, I never even thought about this till I was actually writing this book. 
And I realized that there were a couple of times when I was working with Stanley where I had ideas of my own for screenplays, mm-hmm. and I didn't tell him about them. I just went ahead and wrote them. And that was great a great experience for me, too, because I felt like, oh, I'm not completely dependent on him to tell me what's good and what's not good. And then other times there are moments where you disagree and you say to yourself, you know what? And you think about it. First, he has a strong point of view and you say, okay, I have to yield to him because he's the master, you know? And then you go away and you think about it. You go, no, you know what? He's wrong. That's not what we should be doing. And that really gives you a lot of confidence because you go, ah, okay. I can have ideas myself that are where I'm not dependent on him completely. And you do sort of find yourself doing things that he taught you and that work. And you go, oh, I've really learned something from him here. This is a skill I can use myself. I don't have to depend on him to be there and watch me. What did you take from that experience with Stanley to incorporate into your Bagger Vance, the golf novel that no one thought was going to work? That's another great question, Light. And this is really interesting. I haven't even thought about this until you just asked me that. Talking about the hero's journey and the artist's journey, like we were talking before, when the idea for The Legend of Bagger Vance came to me to write as a book, I think for the first time in my life, the muse was really dictating something to me. And I just followed her. Maybe I was bringing certain skills of organization and reinforcement and stuff like that. But I wasn't really taking writing lessons from the past. This was a whole new ballgame all of a sudden and a whole different voice and a whole different process that was happening. And it was a really a blessed process. In the Breaking Bad recaps, they talked about how people would ask them, did you think this was going to become what it ended up becoming? And obviously, they all said, no, we didn't think so. But there was something about it that resonated. And then, of course, as the seasons continued, they started to become more popular. And then it just became this huge sensation. So was there something in your process of creating Bagger Vance that made you feel this is something special that I'm doing? and or after you completed the process, is there something different about that versus any of those other sort of backward things you were doing in Hollywood where you write a flop and then it, you know, you become the hottest writer in town as a result of that. I mean, you must've been completely turned upside down coming out of that experience. It did feel special light, but, but this is a big, but it felt special to me. I thought, Oh, I'm really onto something here. But at the same time, I thought, but the world, the commercial world, they're not going to have any interest in this at all. I never thought, oh, this is a hit. Not at all. But I just thought, wherever this voice is coming from, this is a pure voice and I have to stay with it. Mm-hmm. But I never thought that it would be successful. That was a surprise. Do you think serendipity is something that follows working for the muse that if you do what you're supposed to do, then usually the way things sort of connect, the dots connect is through some sort of serendipitous. I do. I do. I feel like the muse is floating above us, looking down on us and watching our long process, you know, as we're trying to serve her or find her. And I think she sort of says, no, not yet. Not yet. The guy's okay. Or the gal's okay, but not yet. And then finally, at some point, I think she says, okay, he has suffered enough 
and been true enough, you know, in his dedication or her dedication, I'm going to give him something. Yeah, because you couldn't have planned that, you know. I mean, you were in oh, Hollywood. No, you never no met Robert Redford. But then you go through your literary agent who ends up connecting you with this producer who knows Robert Redford. And then they end up firing you from your own project, which, again, it's not anything new to you. But you actually were really grateful this time you got fired. Why were you grateful? Well, in the movie business, as I know you know, the original writer of anything, if it's a novel or if it's an original screenplay, immediately gets fired, which I can understand because film is a director's medium and it's not a writer's medium. You know, television might be a writer's meeting, reading or showrunner's medium, but film is not. And as soon as the director comes on board, in this case, it was Robert Redford. It's his movie. You know, he wants to make it his own way. And he doesn't want you, the pain in the ass writer, telling him, you know, oh, I didn't see that scene that way. You know, so <laughs> he immediately gets rid of you. Unceremoniously, mostly, right? Unceremoniously. Like in my experience prior to that, no one had ever told me I was fired. I would have to read about it in a paper. You know, and so... In this case, the producer, a great guy named Jake Eberts, who won Best Picture Oscars for Gandhi, Chariots of Fire, Dances with Wolves, and one other one that I'm forgetting, he phoned me up. And he's a Canadian and a really sweet, nice guy. And he said, I feel so bad to tell you, Steve, but you know, you're off the project. And I thanked him profusely because I said, I said, Jake, this is the first time anyone has ever had the actual guts and decency to actually fire me in person, or at least over the phone. So I was really grateful that for that. I have a technical question, again, just as a writer and a fan, when someone writes a memoir, and you, you know, you're a young man, but you've been around for a while, you've been around the block a few times. How do you recall such detail from your past? Have you been keeping journals for years and years and years of these little details uh -huh. or... That's what's the, what's the secret to that? Life. And I was reading Beryl Markham's book, West with the Night. Have you ever heard of that or read it? No, no. Beryl Markham was a woman, and she was like the first woman to fly from Europe to America, kind of like Charles Lindbergh, you know, but in reverse. And it's called West with the Night because somehow she had to fly at night because that way the sun would have come up when she landed in Boston or something. She wanted mm -hmm. like crash landing in Nova Scotia. But I'm I'm reading her book and she's describing the flight. And mm -hmm. she's talking about, I looked at the air pressure gauge, you know, the water pressure gauge and it's <laughs> right. from 47 to 31. And I thought to myself, there's no way she could remember that, you know? So I realized that it was okay to sort of fictionalize a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. to bring in the details just like you would if you were writing it in fiction, because you're mm -hmm. being true to a real event. So the bottom line is some of those things, are, some of them I completely forgot. But the ones that I did remember, I would make up some of the details because, you know, I thought it was legitimate. But I didn't know. I didn't have any notes or anything like that. There were some moments, this happened more than once, where I'd, I'd be wanting to tell a story and I'd say, what year did that happen? Was that before? <laughs> you know, right. And I couldn't remember. I don't know, where, where was I? What happened? I don't know. 
That's what I would imagine. That's how I would imagine it would go. I just wasn't sure if you were able to tap yeah, no, into I some secret memory database that I didn't have access to. But that was one of the moments in your book that made me laugh out loud when, when you talked about how you got to this point in your own career where you decided, I'm going to stop trying to personalize all my characters and base them on people that I know and, and, and myself. And I'm just going to start writing complete fiction. And then you wrote this prison story. And it was so real. People thought you did. They would come up to you and go, "Steve, when did you do? Time? When did you do time?" <laughs> and you had made it all up. It's like a funny moment, but there's a real truth to it. That sort of when you write fiction, it seems realer than when you're actually telling the truth of something that actually happened. Don't ask me why. Well, I do know why. It's because the muse comes in when mm. you're writing fiction. You're pulling it out of the place where the sun don't shine. And somehow that's realer than real. Is there a different mindset or aspect of your, yourself as a writer that you have to drop into to write fiction versus the self-help stuff? Oh, yeah, very different. I sort of liken it to like, let's say when you're a little kid, you're six years old or seven years old, and your mom or the school principal catches you putting cherry bombs in the, in the, in the toilets, you know? And you're on the spot in front of the principal, and all of a sudden you hear yourself like coming up with this incredibly elaborate story that's, you know, an excuse. You know, well, I was actually in there, you know, uh, Father, I was praying. I was actually praying. I was praying. I thought, you know, I could reach God more if I had an explosion. And so that's the sort of place that your mind goes to when you're making up a story, when you're making up fiction, which is the fun of it, you know? You're just winging it, but it's coming from another place, right? It's coming from the muse somehow. It's like having it on stage, right? Not I've right. never done that, but I'm sure that's exactly what it's like. You just you hear your voice saying something and it says something else and you don't know where it's coming from. Tim Ferriss talks about how you inspired him to create these fictional stories. And having been on both sides of that, do you recommend that someone who is a nonfiction self-help writer experiment with the other side and vice versa, someone who only writes fiction experiments with the other side, if it resonates? Like, how do you how do you think about that as a creative? Uh, I, I don't know about that. I, I would only say if somebody was really drawn to tying the other side, go ahead and do mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't give anybody advice to do that. <laughs> What's the best advice you've ever received, Steve? Just keep working. Keep going. No matter what, keep going. I think this is actually part of Government Cheese, a, a director that I worked for named Ernie Pintoff. That was his advice to me. And I thought it was just great advice when I was just a, just starting out and, you know, having only these little crappy jobs like slasher movies and stuff like that. And he just said, keep working because you're mm. going to get better. Porn scripts, uh, any commercials, Don't anything. Don't turn up your nose at anything. You know, the people you meet, somebody that's schlepping coffee on this movie set might be a producer three years from now and they'll hire you. So just keep working. Don't be precious. Keep digging the ditch. You've had bestsellers. You've had books turned into films. You've been on all the biggest podcasts and had, you know, glorious New York including Times Light reviews, including the Light Watkins show. And you have two books in the can. So what is it that inspires you as a creative 
these days versus maybe 15 years ago when art, when the war of art and gates of fire and all these books were in creation. It's a great exercise to sometimes I think to look at somebody like say Bruce Springsteen's albums in a list, look at all of them together, Bob Dylan's album, Joni Mitchell's, anybody Snoop Dogg's albums or whatever it is and see how, you know, one follows the other and yet it's a unity. You know, a Bruce Springsteen album is a Bruce Springsteen album. It's nobody else's, right? Or, you know, any writer, a Saul Bellow book, a Hemingway book, whatever. And I feel like I have a series of works that the muse is going to give me, you know, like assignments. Or if we go back to the trucking metaphor, it's another load, right? You call into the terminal. Okay, pick up this trailer so-and-so and deliver it somewhere else. And as long as I'm getting those phone calls, I'm going to respond to them and do them. So that's what keeps me going. Beautiful. My life is really project to project. And I'm completely immersed in one. And then when it's over, I go on to the next one. So you said you have two in the can ready for release. Uh, yeah. When are those going to come out? I don't know. Maybe next year sometime. This is sort of a COVID thing. You know, when COVID was going on big time, of course, I just had it last week. I just got out of it you know, two days ago. But you couldn't really do anything in terms of like publishing or bringing things out. So I just sort of wrote a few things, you know, and put them in the, just a file on my computer waiting for the time to bring them out. As a writer, do you have like a, I want to do one a year or is there any kind of schedule like that where you, no, you haven't I'm released something waiting, in a while? Know, I'm a servant of the muse, whatever she wants me to do. You know, one of something upcoming might take four years. Mm -hmm. and another thing might just take a month and a half. So whatever she wants me to do. Are you working on a, another one now? Like a yeah. new one? Yeah. I'm working on, uh, without getting into too much detail, this was my last yep. book. It's called Man, Man at Arms. Arms mm -hmm. and it's about a, a recurring character that I have. Telemann of Arcadia. Yes. Yeah. The one-man <laughs> killing machine of the ancient world. And so mm -hmm. I'm doing a follow-up to that book. I'm doing another thing about his life, what happens to him. Beautiful, man. Well, I'm happy to, again, have you back on the show and hear more about your process. And I'm just grateful to receive an advanced copy of Government Cheese. I think people are really going to enjoy it, especially your fans. I think they're really going to enjoy it and uh, happy to be able to call you a friend. Hey, Light, it's great to be on your show and great to hang out with you. And like I say, thank you so much for doing the preparation so that you know we can really get into the weeds on this. Because I think not only is it fun for me, but I think it's really profitable for our listeners that you've really done the work, you know, God bless you and, well, and all of your work. Keep it going. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Thanks. It's an honor. You make it easy because it's such fun to read your stories. So thank you very much, man. Right, we'll see you lot, again right? soon. It's a real pleasure to call you my friend. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Stephen Pressfield. His memoir, Government Cheese, is now available everywhere books are sold. And make sure to follow Steve on social media at stephenpressfield.com for more inspiration. And of course, I'll drop everything else that Stephen and I discussed in the show notes on my website, which is lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to my show, we've got an incredible archive of interviews with other past guests who share how they found their path and their purpose. People like Young Pueblo, 
Ava DuVernay, Ed Milet, Saul Williams, Marcus Samuelson, et cetera, et cetera. You can even search interviews by specific subject matter in case you only want to hear episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or people who've overcome financial struggles or people who've navigated health challenges. You can get a list of all of those episodes at lightwatkins.com slash show. You can also watch these episodes on YouTube. If you want to put a face to a story, just search Light Watkins Podcast on YouTube. You'll find my channel and you'll see an entire playlist of all the past episodes. And if you didn't already know, I post the raw, unedited version of each podcast in my Happiness Insiders online community a day early. So if you're the type who likes to hear all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat in the beginning and at the end of the episodes, then you can listen to all of that by joining my happinessinsiders.com online community. It's at thehappinessinsiders.com. Not only will you have access to the unedited versions of this podcast, but you'll also have access to my 108 day meditation challenge, along with other challenges and masterclasses for becoming the best version of you. And then finally, to help me bring you more amazing guests like Mr. Pressfield, it would go a long way if you could just take 10 seconds to rate this podcast. All you do is you glance down at your screen, you click on the name of the podcast, you scroll down past the first few episodes, you'll see a space with five blank stars. And if you like this conversation, tap that star all the way on the right and you've left a five star review. And if you feel inspired to go the extra mile, you can leave a written review with the one episode that you recommend a new listener could listen to as an introduction to the podcast. It could be the episode that had the biggest impact on you personally. Okay, so thank you very much for that. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking that leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then... Keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.